Uh, well, we, we are in a series on the book of Proverbs, uh, and it's, it's great to, to be here and uh, not be staring at a camera that's like three feet away from your face, and it kind of feels a little bit normal in here, maybe for like an August long weekend, 9 a.m. service or, or something like that. Um, so the book of Proverbs sits in the Old Testament in uh, what are called the wisdom literature. Uh, and there are two unspoken questions that, that float over the wisdom books. And the first is, what kind of world are we living in? And the second is, what does it mean to live well in this world? What kind of world is this, and what does it mean to live well in that world? How does one live a good life? And these are really helpful questions because they get you right down to what you believe about the universe and existence and and your place in the world. Now, the modern understanding of the world, the ocean that, that we're swimming in, is that life comes from nothing and will go to nothing. Alam Shaha, a physics professor and author of a book called The Young Atheist's Handbook, writes this bit of advice for young atheists. It illustrates this. He says, yes, of course, I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose. But the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. Cognitive dissonance, embrace it. Create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. Try being creative. He says, I don't mean that in a poncy hipster sort of way. I mean, make a curry, build some bookshelves, write a poem. And if you're really stuck, eat. Physically filling yourself with The food you love really does fill the emptiness you may feel inside. Life is meaningless, so we need to construct meaning for ourselves, right? From our own wisdom or ethical sense or cooking or poetry or, you know, whatever else you can find, right? This is the the pragmatic or the practical response to the void that we're all apparently staring into. But here's what's really happening, right? What's really happening there is is this, that the only way to be free, says the modern thinker, the only way to liberate myself from the, the constraints of objective morality is to believe that I'm my own master. But that freedom comes at a cost because it requires me to admit that everything is meaningless. That we are, in the end, each and every one of us, very complicated accidents. But we get to do what we want. The Apostle Paul frames it like this in his letter to the Christians in Rome. He says, thinking themselves wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Humanity exchanged the wisdom of God for the wisdom of man. And you can dress that up however you like with whatever philosophy. It always comes back to this exchange. And so you can see how a a person could potentially have Uh, suspicious motives in how they approach these two questions, right? What kind of world are we living in and what does it mean to live well in this world? You know, life and meaning and right and wrong are subject to my opinions because I need them to be, right? So that I can have control of my life. But that's that's not right. You know that's not right. You You can feel it, right? You can feel it in your heart and your bones that there is meaning. There is a reason for all of this, and it's a reason that sits outside of ourselves. It's a reason that sits outside of 
my whims and my desires. And, and so I'm going to make a bold claim here. The reason is Christ. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the answer to both questions that, that these books pose for us is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so how you position yourself in relation to him makes all the difference. How you answer those two questions, it reveals everything about you. Now, our passage this morning breaks into two main sections that I think move us toward answers to these questions. So we're looking at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 to 35. So let's read that together. Proverbs 13, or 3, verse 13 says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for your word, and we pray that as we turn our attention to it, that, Spirit, you would move among us, you'd move in our hearts and in our minds to uh, teach us your ways, teach us your wisdom, and give us wisdom. Help us to ponder these things, Um, with a a heart that is turned toward toward you and and your goodness. Lord, we trust you and we love you. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first question, how does the world work? Well, it's it's an open secret. Uh, It's one of those secrets that's kind of just, it's out there if we pay attention. And the first thing that we need to see is why wisdom matters. Wisdom matters, according to Proverbs 13 to 26, because wisdom is how life works. 
Proverbs, unsurprisingly, if you're familiar with it, it's full of what seem to be paradoxical statements. Um, Speaking of languages, Goethe once said that whoever knows one knows none, which may be true. I only know one language. But the same can be said of Proverbs. If you only know one proverb, you don't actually know any Proverbs. Right? In one verse, it will say that the morally upright always have a good life, and then later we read that the upright will sometimes suffer. Right? And it seems like we've maybe found a contradiction because we're thinking of them as commands or promises when they're actually neither. Right? They're a description of how some, some part of life usually works. So in Proverbs 2 to 4, what we've seen is that there's been a lot of teaching on how to become wise, and this paradox is starting to form. Right? Wisdom is something we need to seek. You see that in, in chapter 1. Right? We're instructed to, to cry aloud for wisdom in chapter 2. Look for it like a, like a hidden treasure. But then in Proverbs 2.6, we're told that ultimately wisdom is, is a gift from God. So which is it? Is it something that we, we seek for, we have to find, or is it something that we receive? It's a paradox. It's both. And it's a wise paradox. One writer put it like this. If it were all up to us, we would labor under crushing anxiety and burnout. But if God only worked apart from us, we would lose all sense of initiative. This paradox gives us enough incentive and enough assurance to pursue the knowledge of God all our life long. And so our passage this morning begins with with this promise in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. So what can we gather about, from this about how the world works? Well, first we can see that wisdom is available to be found, right? and there's blessing for those who find it. Blessed, happy is the one who finds wisdom. It is something that requires searching for, striving after, finding, and getting, and the result is blessing. And now look at this. The phrase, the one, the one who finds Wisdom. That phrase is actually Hebrew for the word or the name Adam or the generic person. Right? So what we see here is that wisdom is available to everyone. Everyone can tap into to wisdom. Now, the other thing that this concept of Adam raises, of course, is, is the garden. The garden of Eden. And if we look at verse 13 to 18 as, as a whole what we see is this picture of what we had in the garden. We had long life. We had pleasantness. We had true peace in the presence of wisdom himself. And verse 18 imagines wisdom as this tree of life. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. And that, that's a picture that just kind of keeps popping up all throughout the Bible, the tree of life. And, and I think that to really get this, we need to go back to that first garden where we're first introduced to this tree of life. God, God has made everything from the word of his mouth. He speaks and, and galaxies spring into existence. And the clouds and the seas and the mountains and all of creation comes to life. And then his crowning act of creation, we read in Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. How are we called to relate to God from the start? It's from a place of receiving life from him, right? He condescends to the dust and breathes life into our lungs. Verse 8 of Genesis 2, 
Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring, spring up every tree that is pleasant to, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know how this story goes, right? God takes Adam, he, he instructs him to work, and it's this reflection of him, right? We're a reflection of, of how God is. He works like God worked in the garden. Just like God took satisfaction in his creation, we too take satisfaction in, in the work of our hands and cultivating things and growing things. And God gives Adam this, this partner, Eve, and they live together and they work together in the presence of God and their hearts are, are filled up with, with joy and with peace in his presence. And all of us walk around with these shadows of that garden in our hearts. Right? We're made for that. And listen, it's not just perfection. It's not just comfort or, or joy or abundance. Those things are good, but they're not ultimate. Right? It's, it's person. It's that relationship with God himself. And in the, in the first garden, we had that. He was in the garden. And to, to live with him and walk with him was to be called, called up into what Lewis, C.S. Lewis called the dance. Right? Communion with God. And Adam and Eve, this is almost unbelievable. Adam and Eve know this. They know this and they walk away from it. They walk away from the garden and into the dark. And shame enters the world and creation breaks and fractures. The garden is lost. Our access to the tree of life, there's barriers put up. But it's lost with a promise, right? The promise that it's not always going to be like this. And the promise meant that creation and life itself was subjected to futility and death and pain. But it was subjected in hope. Right? So, Adam and Eve are, are sent out from the garden and thousands of years of brokenness follow and this pattern of, of sin. And God promising faithfulness and help and rescue happens again and again and again. And until on one starry night in a town called Bethlehem, this child is born. The wisdom of God is a person. The tree of life is a person. A second Adam who would live his life in perfect submission, uh, live his life in obedience to the will of the Father, this second Adam that came to a second garden. So what do we see in, in all of this, right? We look back to this garden and we wonder, okay, well, how is life supposed to go? How does the world work? Well, there is a way that God created the world to function, right? There is a way that life is supposed to work. And that order has been disrupted by sin. Sin and work and life, under sin, work and life are, are filled with pain and futility and, and brokenness. And this brokenness is reflected in verse 14 and 15 of our passage. Right? The problem we face now is that we, we desire wrong things. We continue to look for wrong things. We prefer wealth. We prefer stuff. We prefer position and appearance. We desire the wrong paths. And yet what we learn here is that the gain from wisdom is better than the gain from silver. She is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire, he says, nothing you desire can compare with her. Why? 
Because to get in touch with wisdom, to walk in accordance with God's word and wisdom is to get a taste of what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. It's to get a taste of what was lost there and what can compare with that. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Consider that for a moment. Our desires, the things that we want, that we crave, our heart longings, our poor guides. Our desires so easily lead us astray, right? We're these strange creatures who desire and desire and desire, but we're never satisfied. Though that never seems to stop us from trying. I was reading an article this week uh, by James Smith, and he tells this interesting uh, sort of example of of this. He says, "In in a remarkable book about walking called The Old Ways, British writer Robert McFarlane says that paths are the habits of a landscape. Paths are the grooves humans cut into the crust of the earth, the channels we forge through our environment. City planners, of course, design such paths. We call them sidewalks. But McFarlane says that town planners can look at a city from above and recognize what they call desire paths. The lines of packed dirt and flattened grass across the middle of parks that signal a population wants to go this way, even though the the defined, designed path takes a different route. A plan says, you should go this way. Desire paths are the result of people saying over and over again, too bad, we want to go that way. He says, the adventure of sanctification is learning how to walk or learning to walk on the right desire path. A million cultural rituals are training us to go wherever we want, to blaze our own trail. The gospel doesn't call us to overcome desire. It calls us to rightly order desire. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will show you the desire path you've spent your whole life looking for. What is the path that you've spent your whole life looking for? Really? The path that all our desires really kind of point us to? Well, listen to verse 17 and 18. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. We keep running down these other paths, hoping that they'll give us what only one path can give us. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So wisdom here would say, don't settle for money. Don't settle for treasure. Don't settle for accomplishments. They're not going to give you true peace. They're mere metaphors for the true treasure, right? Wisdom himself, the the person of, of Jesus Christ. And so the natural question that I think any of us would ask is, how do I find that path? How do I get on that path? More on that later. We'll get there. But for now, just notice the defining features of this life. It's marked by peace. It's marked by pleasantness. Are those the definitive markers of your life? When, when something goes wrong, when something falls apart, when your boss lays you off or when your spouse breaks your trust or a global pandemic hits, do you know that peace that passes all understanding? You see, these things reveal what's, what it is that we're actually holding on to. Are you holding on to the tree of life? Or like Adam and Eve, are you walking 
to other things. We, we repeat the fall, don't we? Like, I think it's easy to kind of look at them and go, like, why would they do that? We do that every day. What tree are you holding on to? The novelist Mary Lynn Robinson writes this. She said, it's possible to know the great truths without feeling the truth of them. It's possible to know the great truths without feeling the truth of them. And that's right, isn't it? It's possible that we might know the truth about God, but we've never felt it. We've never tasted it. We've never been moved by it. David in the the Psalms tells us that we're to consider the love of God. He says, whoever's wise, consider these things. Wonder about them. Ponder the love of God. Plumb the depths. Consider the mystery. This is, this is more than information, right? I can't, I can't give you a link to, to the Dropbox with the peace of God, and you can just download it. It has to be known. It has to be tasted. And so we need to see the source of wisdom. What is the source of wisdom? We, we see in verse 19 and 20, the source of wisdom. We're looking at how the world works, and we saw the value of wisdom, that it's available to everyone, and its roots stretch back all the way to the garden. And what we see now is where wisdom comes from. Verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. That's kind of, those verses, like, there's a temptation to just sort of read past that, like it's just filler kind of stuff, but it's not filler. What that's saying is that there's a certain givenness to things. God created the world with his divine word and wisdom, and because of that, there's a givenness to things. There's an order to things. Derek Kidner says, in light of this, the only wisdom by which you can handle everyday things in conformity with their nature is the wisdom by which they were divinely made and ordered. The only wisdom by which you can handle everyday things in conformity with their nature is the wisdom by which they were divinely made and order, ordered. There's a, there's a way that things are, are made, and if your life is going back and forth, it's not going to end well. Disorder cannot thrive in order. There's a givenness to things, physically, socially, morally, spiritually. As we heard last week, there are natural consequences, right? We can't treat our bodies any way we want to without consequences. We can't treat people any way we want to without consequences or money or nature, right? This order was established at creation and continues in creation. Notice the present tense there. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, okay, past tense, and the clouds drop down the dew. Present tense. He sustains all things, even the raindrops, by his wisdom. I don't think we marvel enough at the daily sustaining grace of God. We're just, I'm talking about myself here, we just kind of walk past incredible things. Listen to this example from John Piper. He says, picture yourself as a farmer in the Near East, far from any lake or stream. A few wells keep the family and animals supplied with water, but if the crops are to grow and the family is to be fed from month to month, water has to come on the fields from another source. From where? Well, the sky. 
Water is going to come out of the clear blue sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the Mediterranean Sea over several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland during the night, that would be 27 million cubic feet of water, which is 206 million gallons, which is 1.6 billion pounds of water, which is heavy. So how does it get up in the sky and stay up there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation, which is a nice word. What does it mean? It means that the water sort of stops being water for a while so it can go up and not down. Then how does it get down after it's up? Well, condensation happens. The water starts becoming water again by gathering around little dust particles between 0.0001 and 0.001 centimeters wide, which is quite small. And what about the salt? Well, the Mediterranean Sea is salt water. That, that would kill the co- crops. What about the salt? Well, the salt has to be taken out. So the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sky, leaves the salt, and then carries it for 300 miles and dumps it on the farm. Well, it doesn't dump it. If it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, it would kill everyone. So it dribbles it down. And we kind of just go, you yeah. Right? Science 10, okay. Stop and consider the wisdom of God that's made manifest in nature. You know, if God can work that wisdom, I think he can work out your life, right? I don't think you're convinced. I have another example here. Presently, he's sustaining the life in your body. I've been reading this book by Bill Bryson on the human body. I don't know why. I just kind of picked it up. Um, and... I feel like every two pages, I just stop and, and wonder at this. He's not a Christian writer, but listen to what he says. He says, we pass our existence within this warm wobble of flesh and yet take it almost entirely for granted. How many among us, unless you're a doctor or, or nurse, how many among us know even roughly where the spleen is or what it does or the difference between tendons and ligaments or what our lymph nodes are up to? How many times a day do you blink? 500, 1,000, you've no idea, of course. Well, you blink 14,000 times a day, so much that your eyes are shut for nearly 23 minutes of every waking day. Yet you never have to think about it because every second of every day, your body undertakes a literally unquantifiable number of tasks, some number vastly beyond imagining without requiring an instant of your attention. In the second or so since I started this sentence, your body has made a million red blood cells. They're already speeding around you, coursing through your veins, keeping you alive. Each of those red blood cells will rattle around you about 150,000 times, repeatedly delivering oxygen to your cells, and then, battered and useless, will present itself to, another, to other cells to be quietly killed off for the greater good of you. Listen to this. He says, altogether it takes... Seven billion, billion, billion atoms to make you. No one can say why those seven billion, billion atoms have such an urgent desire to be you. They are mindless particles, after all, without a single thought or notion between them, yet somehow, for the length of your existence, they will continue to make you you, to give you form and shape and let you enjoy the rare and supremely agreeable condition known as life. No one knows why 
they have such an urgent desire to stick together. To which I would respond, we do know, right? We do know why these atoms hold together. Paul explained it a couple thousand years ago. He said, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Seriously, stop watching whatever crime drama or unsolved mystery that that you're watching on Netflix and turn on planet Earth or blue planet, or better yet, go outside and marvel at, at the wisdom and understanding and knowledge of God that's just laid out before you. And you know what's even even crazier than this, is that when we think about creation now and how incredible it is, like you go up, take a hike in Golden Ears or drive down, watch the sunset at Crescent Beach, that's broken. That creation is is not what it was and it's not yet what it will be. No matter how beautiful creation is now, it's not what it used to be and it's not yet what it will be and that's why Paul tells us that creation groans. Augustine said, if these are the beauties afforded to sinful man, what does God have in store for those who love him? If these are the beauties afforded to sinful man, what does God have in store for those who love him? We're surrounded and sustained by God's wisdom, and we barely notice it. We barely understand it. C.S. Lewis explained, at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the... Freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But someday, God willing, we shall get in. The wisdom of God is revealed in creation. How does the world work? Well, it's by his wisdom. right? And so we approach the second question. What does it mean to live well? Well, it's in accordance with his wisdom. Right? What's the application here? How, in, in light of what, what, we, what we read in the first half of this proverb, how do we live now? What does it mean to live well? So in the last little bit here, what can we, what can we take away? Well, the, in the big picture, what we see is wisdom creating in us a culture of life in the midst of a broken world, a culture of peace in the midst of a culture of anxiety. We saw this pictured earlier as a path, right? The pathway of peace. And the question that we arrived at was simple. How do I get on the path? Now, if we look through the last 14 verses here, we'll see that the father here, he changes his style to a direct address, right? He says, my son. It's like this moment, like focus. Listen, my son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Focus up. There'll be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. And and so he goes on to outline this cause and effect argument for wise living, right? My son, he says, follow my instructions and things will go well for you because God will protect you from from all these different landmines that sin has hidden in the world here. The Lord will be your confidence, your security. You're going to live in confidence. You're going to sleep well when you're living in wisdom. Why? Because you're you're in right relationship with God. You're in some measure, you're experiencing the garden. And so from that place, Solomon moves from, from this vertical relationship with God to our horizontal relationship with others, right? And so we get this set of instructions about how to be, 
particularly in, in relation to our, our neighbors, right? And they, they flow out, these instructions flow out as warnings against sins of omission or a failure to do something good and warnings against sins of commission or, or doing something bad. And so we piece it all together. We see three commands here. First, he says, help your needy neighbor. Second, he says, protect your innocent neighbor. And third, don't envy your wicked neighbor. Or to sum it all up, if you love God, you're going to love your neighbor. So first, help your needy neighbor. Verse 27, he says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when when it's in your power to do it. The word good here refers to material good or wealth. You owe your neighbor what they're due. And the phrase to whom it's due translates simply to the owners. The needy have a claim on your assets. Like it's, you owe it to them, he says. This is a a different version of generosity than maybe we're used to, right? We give something away and we kind of pat ourselves on the shoulder. Tim Keller says the world is God's and if he has given given you more of it to steward than someone else, that does not mean it belongs wholly to you. Like any steward, you must use the true owner's wealth as he wishes it to be used. So we don't have time this morning to do this, but I'm fairly confident if you look through your Bible, you're going to see that God has a heart for the poor. Do you have an elderly neighbor that can't can't afford to fix her furnace? Do you have friends that, that can't afford to make rent this month? These are relevant questions today. If you have more worldly goods, it's your responsibility to share what God has blessed you with. Basil the Great, which is a great name, Basil the Great in 329 AD put it like this. He said, the bread which you keep belongs to the hungry, the coats in your closet to the naked, those shoes to the shoeless, the gold you've hidden to the needy. Therefore, as often as you were able to help others and refused So often did you do them wrong. What do you have that actually belongs to other people? And how are you going to get it to them? I think there's a real temptation for us to get cynical about this, right? We can always find someone who's doing better than we are. We can always find ways of justifying why those who are worse off than us deserve to be worse off than us. But to withhold good is to withhold love. And that is a life-depleting sin. So the question is, what good are you withholding? Jesus withheld no good from you. Jesus withheld no good thing from you. And through his power, we're empowered to extend his love to our neighbors. The second thing the father tells his son is to protect your innocent neighbor. We see this positive point through some negative instructions. He says, do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Essentially, this is a command to live with integrity, right? Be someone that others can trust. Don't engage in fault finding. Don't be critical for no reason. Don't be contentious for no reason. Seek to live in peace. Don't plan evil against your neighbor. This is countercultural, isn't it? We just love to find reasons to tear people down. Instead, we're told, be someone that others can trust, live in 
integrity. Finally, the father tells the son, do not envy the wicked person, the violent person who seems to, seems to be prospering because of his schemes. Right? There are times when it seems like following the path of wisdom, following Jesus, doesn't work out like we think it should. Right? That if I followed the path of, of evil, it would lead to quick success. Right? If, I, if I took that job or, or moved to this place or stretched the truth here and there, or if I stopped tithing, or if I invested in that opportunity, wouldn't my life look better than it is now? The father here pleads with the son, don't envy the wicked. Don't envy these people, because in the end, the tables will turn. In the end, they lose. In the end, there is an order to the world. And yes, in a fallen world, it doesn't always work itself out immediately, but God stands behind his order and judgment will eventually fall. The Proverbs are not always immediately true, but they're all ultimately true in the end. So help your neighbor, protect your neighbor, and don't envy the wicked. Now we started with two questions. What, how does the world work and what does it mean to live well? And I, I claimed that the answer to, to both of these questions is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And I said that how you position yourself in relation to him makes all the difference here. Now, the temptation for us is to take those three instructions and go, okay, well, living well means doing these three things. When in fact, those three things are the fruit of a relationship. Wisdom became a man. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And so to pursue wisdom is to pursue a person not moral improvement. We can't leave here thinking that all you need to do is self-improvement. You can go down to chapters and get that for 1999. You have to address the vertical relationship before you can actually address the horizontal. So I'm not saying those things don't matter. I'm saying they're not first. Listen when I read to verse or read verse 33 and 35. Through the lens of the gospel, what do we have to conclude here? Verse 33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the house or the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. What do do we have to conclude there? I was in the house of the wicked. I was in the house of the scorner. I was a fool. Proverbs says that right living will bring, bring blessedness. But you and I both know that we are not as righteous as we ought to be. Right? So how can I dwell in the house of the righteous? How can I inherit honor? Well, the answer is this. Jesus dwelt in the house of the wicked so that I could dwell in the house of the righteous. Jesus took on the scorn that I deserve so that I could receive the favor that he deserved. Jesus took on my disgrace so that I could inherit the honor due his name. In short, Proverbs calls us to become wise by entering into a relationship with the wisdom that created the world. And the gospel calls us to get the ultimate, the consummate wisdom, the gospel and indwelling spirit of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe this is the morning you'll finally call out to him. 
Maybe this is the morning where, where you'll, you'll really know and taste the love of God. Not just sort of know about it. Maybe this is the morning where you'll see again how personal Christianity really is. That the, the deepest secret of wisdom comes not through education and philosophy and learning, but through an intimate relationship with a humble man who is willing to lay his life down for you. Right? We remember that Jesus took our place. He, he dwelt in the house of the wicked so that we could dwell in the house of the righteous. He took on our disgrace so that we could inherit the honor that, that he deserved. And now we're invited into this relationship with this, with this man who is willing to lay down his life for you. And I pray that, that you would know that. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, you teach us that the way up is down, that the way to be rich is to give ourselves away, that your kingdom is altogether unlike anything uh, we expected. Lord, our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, their rebellion subjected us to death and pain and futility, and we confess daily in our sins that we confirm that choice that they made. And Lord, we praise you that, that you tasted death for us, that we might receive and have this tree of life. So would you give us grace as we seek to, to work out our salvation, knowing that it's, it's you who moves in us both to will and to work. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.